What am I to do? Welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, welcome to Razor Branding Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to welcome our first official real guest, Rob Kirkpatrick. Michael and I are going to do this together for the first time. I mean, we've done lots of other things together over the years, but it's the first time we're doing this podcast together like this. So it could be awesome or awful. We're going to see how it goes. It could be the first and last time. (laughs) But that's why I'll be over. But Rob is a good person to start with because um, he'll be cool if we screw it up. He'll recover. All right. So I'd like to welcome Rob Kirkpatrick. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being our first official guest. I mean, what about this uh, this at-home guest bedroom slash gift closet room slash radio studio? I like the so, ambient lighting. Very nice. You know, I'm I'm a lighting guy, so, you know, we have enough and the hair is, is actually pretty done because I'll say this. It sounds like the ultimate first world problem, but I am really missing my haircut situation. I've cut my hair three times so far over the years. And every time the kids are like, that looks terrible. It looks like you cut it yourself. But I, it can't have it touch the top of my ears. That's weird. Well, but yeah. I've seen some public officials who appear to still be getting regular haircuts. So it'll be interesting uh, when yes. this all gets shaped up. Well, you know, I do have a friend. He's just uh, not living in Louisiana right now. But I hear he's supposed to be back next week to to visit. Is that what we do now? I don't know. But um. He actually showed up to the suite I was in on my wedding day with his scissors and comb and everything else. And he goes, seriously, you didn't get your hair cut before your, your wedding? And I was like, no, I like my hair. It's fine. It was He picked up a chair and he brought it into the bathtub and cut my hair there. So I'm looking to get a black market haircut at some point next week. We'll see. We'll see yeah, what happens. That's a good friend. Does he have really long arms? Can he do it from six feet away? <laughs> Look, I'm gonna fine. I I can hold the mask over my face. I mean, I could do everything, and uh, I'll make sure he's safe. I figure if he has a mask and you have a mask, what's the difference between that and passing each other in the grocery store? That you know what? It's a good point. I have to remind myself in this whole process, though, is a lot of I think the regulations we have are for people who are not using common sense anyway. You know, I mean, I saw someone. I did have to pop into the grocery store today. And I did see someone, okay, walk to their car, unload the groceries, put the car back, open the door, and that's when they grabbed for their wipes. And they went up to their elbow, to their fingertips. And I'm like, listen, corona or no corona, the world would be a much healthier place if everyone did that, you know? So, you know, I'm happy with the wipes. Uh, I feel like I'm not touching my face really anymore. And uh, I don't know, I'm feeling a little bit more confident about the new normal. I'm curious, though, about when I saw somebody running the other day wearing a mask and I saw someone in their car driving wearing a mask. I don't know. If, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if, if that's the, um, I guess it's just be safer than sorry. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the, the meaning behind it. But I mean, I'm just happy. I, I was actually talking to my staff earlier and, you know, because we we seem to be yearning for normal. OK, so what does that mean? What was normal? Are we are we going to go back to what? you know, life was like before we experienced any of this? I don't think so. I just think maybe the mask situation just gets less scary. You know, we're not used to having to do it here, but maybe we just get used to it and we're all right with it, you know? Or it makes it more scary. I think there's people who definitely have the visual, like, 
it makes them feel very uncomfortable with everybody wearing a mask. I know because it, it's it's sort of like my experience after going through the whole Katrina thing, and I know Rita here. Seeing a line at a gas station makes me have a semi anxiety attack because I remember that feeling of, oh, this gas station has gas, so everyone in town goes there, and so it's almost this feeling like, what do they know that I don't know? Right. Luckily, um, you know, I, former KATC anchor Hoyt Harris, I saw he posted a picture of himself in Albertsons this morning. Couldn't tell if he was robbing them or getting arugula, but <laughs> I guess I mean it's it's changed things. Well, I did see two people broke into Kiki uh, Saturday night and stole yeah. from them, and they were both wearing the masks. So I wondered if that was some sort of a concern about health while robbing a store approach to thievery. That was probably just a typical robber mask. Yeah, but it wasn't a bandana. No, it was a health mask. Oh, it was, I mean, it wasn't well, like an N95, mask. but it was definitely yeah. a health mask. You know, it's it's just very different than what we're used to. I've been places, in, and obviously when all this was first getting started. I mean, before we even really knew of the threat, I mean, I was in DC like the third week of February and people were wearing masks in the airport. And I mean, obviously there are international flights going in and out of Dallas. And so that was happening. And I was even kind of looking at that like, what if I should be wearing a mask? I didn't have Sen one, but. Senator Cassidy and I flew from New Orleans to New York uh, the third week in February, Mardi Gras week. And so yeah. I'm glad both of us made it in and out without any health concerns because we were in both hot spots. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's so interesting to me about all this is I was talking to someone who had to be up in D.C. And, and flew in and out even in early March, late February, I mean, back and forth, who ended up with, with what they thought was a terrible cold that they caught while flying. And um, I don't know, I think it'll just be interesting to see in the next months and years for us to get a full scope of what COVID-19 was. Did people have it more than we knew before we knew what it was or before we were actually testing for it? And I think that's the interesting part. Now, if that was happening, then there should be far more people who are immune to it than we know right now, you know? Right. But until we do antibody tests, how could we possibly know that? So, okay, maybe it's just me, but... I'm weary of the antibody tests because I feel like everyone wants them. Okay. It's created this, like, I mean, I'll be honest. I almost drove two hours, two days ago because there's a lab in Covington that's doing it 60 bucks. And I sort of feel like $60 in the gas to get there. And my time would be worth it if it came out that I had the antibodies. Right. right. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't end up doing it, but um, I just worry that, you know, everyone, with anything, with any anything people want a product right now, that maybe it's just not all the way. And then I have, then what if it's not true? And I get sick. I get people sick. I don't know. These are all things that float around in the Rob Kirkpatrick headspace. Well, and then do you end up where you have um, a, a color-coded panel on your phone, green for the fact that you're safe, red for the fact that you're infected? I mean, yeah. what kind of world does that become? I'll tell you this. Um, all this, yeah, all this news about Google and Apple working together I'll tell you this. I mean, I feel better with Apple working on it because I feel like they have a little bit of a better track record with privacy. But even, I mean, not that I, not that what would you want to protect about knowing if you were positive or not, but just the whole, hey, you've been in contact with someone in the last several days. Oh, that's going to cause hysteria. 
Wouldn't it show I mean, that we all were to some degree? Because even if I was passing them in a grocery store or passing them in a parking lot, I feel like that's kind of, if it's as widespread as we think it might be, yeah. then everybody could be. But did you just pass them in a the grocery store or did you hold them to the same baskets you that they used? And did you touch your face? There are just so many. I, like I said, I'm so ready for months and years down the road for us to understand really what the threat is slash was. Right. I think no, if, I, I agree. I think if people fall on different lines right now, either you're on the um, you're a believer, you're listening to everything they're doing, you're very cautious, you're locked up in your house, you're not talking, you know, then there's the the people that's I guess maybe the skeptics a little bit. They're not sure, mm-hmm. but they're still kind of following the, the rules. Yeah. And there's like the um, the conspiracy theorists that are on the other completely other side that are that, that are, you know, you're taking my civil liberties. This is this is a scary world where we're we all heading. Mm-hmm. And so the reality is which which line you fall into and which one is going to be right in the end, you know? You know, and, and that's what I think is hard because to an extent, I think everyone is a little bit right. I think maybe China didn't tell us everything they needed they needed to. Maybe the World Health Organization trusted them too much. Um, maybe the president trusted the CDC early on when they said they had it under control. I mean, so that would fall into your conspiracy box. Um then you kind of have to ask yourself, like, was communication actually happening? One of my favorite, you know, uh, quotes from someone I worked for, Mike Grimsley, who would always say, listen, guys, <laughs> when we were having a problem, when we were at this log jam. He would say, you know, the biggest problem with communication is the, you know, the fact that you guys think it's existing. It's not happening. <laughs> you know, and that was, you know, that's what it was, the illusion that it's actually happening. And sometimes I think we get focused on certain things and it's with everything. If you cared as much about everything as everything else, you would never be able to to keep it straight. And so I think every day we kind of take these gambles. Uh, I've heard that before. It never happened. So let me kind of move on about it. I will say that, you know, context is such a big thing to me. And I often think one of the problems with my industry is, for example, the, the television medium if you look at a 30-minute newscast that you're expected to tell everyone everything that happened during the day what they should worry about and what they shouldn't in 22 minutes once you take out commercial time that's too fast you know it is one of the reasons i gravitate towards radio because guess what if i wake up tomorrow like will probably happen and you have oil trading in negative numbers we can talk about it with context for an entire hour or three or five as long as people are calling and context is important in all these things. The one kind of argument about this kind of going into, into the conspiracy part or addressing the, that part is the fact that the models were wrong. And, you know, if you listen to the Fauci's and the Dr. Burks on the White House task force, what they will say was, well, no, the initial models were if we change nothing. We changed things. People socially distanced themselves. They washed hands. They did all these things. Then the models corrected. I know the University of Washington study had the number of Louisiana deaths really high. It, they came down to about 700. Now they're back up to 1,700. And so, you know, we know with any graph projection or anything else, it's only as good as the data you put in. Right. And as we get more, and I just think that's why it's just bigger than any of us, any one person. So it's not Fauci. It's not Trump. It's not Governor Edwards. It's not Mayor President Guillory. That's why it has to be such a concerted effort, because 
there are people who have studied this kind of stuff forever. And I, a lot of the stuff is happening. Thank goodness we didn't reach capacity levels in the hospital. But I just I think it's too early for us to tell. You know, it's always going to seem like you're you were overprepared when things go better than planned. It's just like hurricanes. I mean, you know, you, what's, um, you, mentioned, you mentioned the mayor. Do you think that's a what he's doing right now is a good thing in Lafayette as far as the kind of shop safe thing that's going on? Well, you know, I did think one of the interesting parts about it was I did see that the question was posed to the governor's office. Does this still fall within your stay at home order? And the general counsel for the governor said it falls into it as it was issued. These middle of the ground businesses could have been open. It was just never explicitly said, you know, you had the prohibited businesses and you had the essential businesses. Those businesses in the middle, you know, sort of depend whether it was right, wrong or indifferent. It's changed the attitude, I think, here. But wait, Traffic Rob, is don't out. I remember that the governor said only these essential businesses will be allowed to be open. So there's no gray see, area. Well, see, there's, I think, a very big difference in what was expressed in the press briefing verbally and what was in the order. I, I thought very much on the early part of this, it was just essential. So I would see a cell phone store open, be like, hold up, we really going to use your classification as a communication company to be open? Because it's not, I mean, and so it, it led to a lot of questions. I think that because we've never been through something like this, to me, if I was on the governor's team, once this is finished, I would say, Okay, next time we do something like this, let's address every single category of business with a, a graph or a chart or something. When you go to the governor's office website that says dry cleaners, not essential, furniture stores, you can deliver, people just can't gather in your store. And maybe we have a blueprint next time. We just didn't have it now. And I don't think that's anyone's fault. Well, I vote for no next time. How about that? I vote for no next time, too. And I do think that we will have to think about it again just because you're, you're seeing the economic impact. I know early on I was sort of polling my friends because that's what I do. OK, I'm, I'm always just sort of interested in how are people feeling about this? And so, you know, I, I texted some some folks who have, you know, government experience, but also education. I mean, just kind of different. They're just People who are who are plugged into different things. And I said, so what do you make of this whole thing? Because I have to be honest, in the early days, I was trying to solve the world's problems in my own head, you know, and I'm cutting the grass, like feeling this weight on me. And finally, my wife had to pull me aside and be like, you can't fix any of this. You can finish cutting the grass. You can control what time the kids go to bed tonight. But you can't control what the president thinks, what the economy is going to do. Um and so whenever you, I think you start looking at it, and, and maybe now we do have a blueprint, I think we are going to have to think about this again. However, I understand the worry of people that say, you did it one time, we know we can survive it, so it will happen again. I get it. So does it happen during flu season? I see. I think that will be, that will be the number that I'm interested in. Because you know once we have a whole year's worth of data, like right now, for example, flu cases, I think they're... I think COVID-19 to flu cases are like five to one right now. But you have to think of all the different pieces. Kids aren't going to school. They're not giving it to each other. Teachers aren't taking care of 30 kids. So they're not catching it from the kids. And then you have a legitimate fear. Like I think one of my favorite 
things that has happened only because I don't think anyone expected it is that people were so scared by it or there are, they are so scared about it that they're not going to the hospital for things they did before. There is, you know, and we've known for a while, we have heard from healthcare professionals that say people go into the emergency room with things that are not ER level ailments all the time, which is, I think, probably one of the reasons you saw a, you know, a, an urgent care being built in the parking lot right there at UHC in Lafayette. It's a place for people to go for the slice in their finger or, or a stomach ache or those sorts of things that in theory could wait to go to a regular doctor, but there's a gap right there because not everyone has a doctor to go to. So um, I think that's, I think that's going to be a very interesting change. One of the most inter interesting interviews I've done recently was with David Calicod from Lafayette general and to which he said, people who probably would have said they were never comfortable with telemedicine ever before, even though the platforms have been there, it comes down to usage though. You could build this platform, but if no one is using it, well, it's going to go to the back burner because there are places that people are using. But when you start talking about follow-up visits for oncology patients and think about how much safer that could be forever. If you tell the oncology patients, we need to do these over zoom because I just want to hear how you're feeling. And I just want to tell you what this latest test result shows. I'm not doing any, I'm not poking on you, not prodding on you. That stuff can't be done, you know, with telemedicine, but a lot can, if it's just to say, do you have any questions? How are you feeling? I'll see you next month. And I well, think our, that our could be big. On Wednesday, uh, Melissa Bowen's our guest on Wednesday, and we're talking about telehealth for mental health and how people yeah. have transitioned to over the phone appointments for therapy and how that's affecting them. I think you'll see big gains in telemedicine and Zoom, two big yeah. winners in all this for sure. Yeah, I think so too. And I also think just working remotely, I mean, even in, in my own industry, lately there have been a lot more jobs that are like, we don't care where you are. Right. We we have a small office in city XYZ, but really we all talk to each other on Zoom and we can get everything done. I also think because I'm always looking to see kind of what kind of progress is gonna happen. I also think there's a little bit of progress in these businesses to feel comfortable that you're not going to just be playing with your dog and not getting dressed at home. I mean, think about a lot of the expense that you have. Real estate is expensive. Um, you look at cities like Dallas where companies moved out of downtown just because of the cost. And they all moved to Richardson and to Frisco and to Irving and different areas because the real estate's cheaper. You could build your own building, have your own parking lot. It's a, it's just a lot less expensive. Telework is really inexpensive if all you're doing is maybe paying for someone's internet connection and their computer. I mean, I think you're going to have a lot more industries who are going to say they think it's okay. I don't think it replaces it permanently. I miss the personal touch. I actually went today to the KPL studios and had a staff meeting in person just because I wanted to see them. And I, I know as a manager, it's important for them to see me at the same time. You know, we're like every other business having to watch things that we never had to watch before, having to change business models and processes with fewer people. I, I can't do that forever from my house. You know, I need I need to see them. And they need to see me. How do you maintain company culture with everybody working remotely? You know that I think that is the biggest challenge. Um, I sort of have the feeling now and I've learned to recognize this about myself. I can't do longer than like a five day vacation because by day five, like I need a place to go. And it's not just 
I mean, it's crazy. My commute, I get up in the morning, I swing by the kitchen to turn on coffee, take a shower, and I come in. I mean, it's weird. I feel like, and then by two o'clock in the afternoon, I feel like I haven't done anything. And that's not the case. I've been working all day long. But um, the company culture thing is hard and it does not translate. And we're using all the technology, using the Zoom, using um, Teams through through Microsoft because our email is done that way. Um, but still, I mean, I find that people I normally have phone calls with are like, hey, do you mind just FaceTiming me just so we could have that FaceTime literally right. to, you know, kind of see how someone's feeling. And and I think it's also important. Um, I think a lot of times managers, just because of how a lot of them are, a lot of us are, um, like to just speed through it. You know what? Let's push through. It's going to be OK. New normal. Let's push through and everything. And I don't know if that's right right now. I think we might need to to let our employees tell us they're scared and to say, here's my concern. It might explain a lot of things to you, whether it's a lack of productivity. I saw something interesting over the weekend that said, the next time you're hard on yourself for the job you're doing working from home, remind yourself what you're actually doing is you're home during a crisis and you're attempting to work. And there are, I mean, a lot of people, I'm thankful that, you know, I get up in the wee hours of the morning, I do a radio show for three hours, and that's the only time my kids can't come in, you know, or talk to me. Sometimes they do, and I just have to be all right with it. But people who are on these high-level calls and, and different things like that, I think it's important. You know, I mean, it's just a hard thing to do. We talked about fear, though. Like, um, where is the fear, though? I mean, I think uh, for a lot of people, are, are they... I guess it just depends. Same thing as earlier that you depends on which side of the road you fall on. Are you afraid of really getting sick? Are you afraid of, of losing your job? Are you afraid of the economy tanking and, and not being able to pay for college and not be, I mean, there's so many yeah. fears involved yep. with the reality of this that have really nothing to do with the actual getting sick part. You know, I, I think I've talked to more people that were, are more worried about losing their job. That leads to such insecurity um, just in your life. Uh, can I pay my mortgage? Can I keep the lights on? Once you pull all that off, the job really didn't matter. The job was just that constant, you know? And I do think that, you know, kind of part of the normal is people just accepting what could happen and and to think about their own risks. Do they have high high risk factors? Are they over the age? I think the new age I'm hearing kind of tossed around as far as really the breaking point is like 73 you know, just because there are going to be those health conditions that are either controlled by medication and different things as well. But you also start to look at the high risk factors for flu as well. Just I'm not comparing the two. Don't misconstrue. And they look will at come the high, after you, by the way. They will. They will. They're, they're but people, I'm just, when they hear that, they're, they're the first ones. They're like the um, the covid police. You know, making yeah, sure that, you know, and I'm not and I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is look at the people who die from the flu. They are people older in age. The biggest anomaly is that it's not affecting young people, as far as we know, in a great, great range. Um, But you look at what diabetes, what heart problems, what asthma, all play into flu deaths. You know what? I I think for some people, it's a reason to say, okay, I'm going to get it and I'm going to beat it. You know, if you can use it for positive, I've seen a lot of uh, healthy people that have had some sort of it. I think also the symptoms are all different. And what we're hearing about mainly 
is the respiratory symptoms. But we know there are other strains that aren't, aren't respiratory systems. It's stomach issues. It's the other things. Maybe you have the high fever, but you don't have the heart, you know, the worries with your breathing. I just think there's just so many things. And if I knew the answer for whether or not it would come up again, that we would have problems, I'd be the richest man in the world. And I don't think anyone knows the answer. Now, you've covered a lot of global stories, whether it's in your time yeah. at or CNN, you know, you have a storied um, career as a journalist. What's your gut on how this all started in a wet market and a lab? Well, I think from the research that I've done, everything under the microscope looks the same as every other animal to human transmission. Um, were their practices sloppy at the lab in Wuhan, China? There is record of that. Are there wet markets that could have the same you know, conditions there to pass it on? It's there as well. I mean, I think we it's something that we need to be investigating. And, you know, if I, given my experience covering news, I would guess they already are, whether it's the CIA or, you know, it really wouldn't be the FBI. Those, they deal with more, you know, NSA. more, maybe NSA a little bit, but I definitely think, um, you know, a big part of it is, is that investigation. And my gut tells me they're already looking into it. They're probably already there. Um, I don't believe that it was intentionally done by a government. That's just my that's just my feeling because I think there's just a lot to lose. I mean, even I mean, I I hate to even say it like this, but even for China, I I just see that it's it, it's it's way too much to lose. I would say it's probably a very you know easy story of someone was sloppy, they didn't clean up after themselves, someone was was infected. They didn't want to say it was them. So then they infected more people. You know, I do think that we will eventually have to come back to the reporting because that's the big question. If we would have known about all of this from the start, would we have made different changes? I mean, look at the two coasts. We have Washington State and California, kind of two success stories of how maybe not widespread testing at the beginning, but the social distancing and everything else, we see their numbers. Then we see New York. New York's not getting flights from Asia as commonly. All of theirs comes from Europe. So what do you do the next time if you don't want to social distance? When we see one of these the first time, do you just say no international travel? I mean, when you look back at it, we fly in in a lot of people. We fly out a lot of people, and it's constant. Would I want to see that happen? No. But could I see it happening in the future to prevent a shutdown like we have right now? Absolutely. Now, as U.S. hits 42,000 deaths today and China's still reporting 4,600 deaths, you think their numbers are real? Of course they're not. <laughs> I think that countries like China and North Korea are really big about perception on the national stage. Um, or no, sorry, international stage. Um, there's also a big disparity. I mean, uh, people talk a lot about disparity in our own country, which I do believe exists in a, in a way. In China, there are billionaires and there are people who can't eat. There's very little of the middle ground. And so I think that, you know, that's all part of the perception thing. We have this under control. Now, there will be a lot of people who hope to see manufacturing 
and that sort of thing come back to the United States, we know that cost was a big reason. It's cheaper to make things there and ship it here than workers, you know, would want to be paid here to make the same thing. Probably a question we're going to have to ask ourselves as a community, you know, and, and to see over the next couple months what we end up with. What do we have shortages of? Um, you know, I was talking to you a, a little bit earlier about the grocery business. I know some of the issues they're having is packaging. The packaging is imported. Maybe the product is here, but the hanger doesn't come from here. The cellophane that goes around the meat doesn't come from here. You know, different things like that, which maybe we maybe we change that a little bit. We have people that want to work or they say they want to work. But, you know, I think that's a big it's a big thing, a big gut check question we have to ask. Are you hearing from a lot of businesses who received the PPP, reached out to their employees to come back, speaking of people wanting to work, and the employees mm -hmm. said, no, I'm going to stay home and collect my stimulus and my unemployment and not work for my money? I'll tell you, so far, I've talked to more people who are waiting to get an answer on their PPP than I've actually gotten it, number one. Um I have talked to a business owner who is worried that once the go-ahead comes to open back up, that their employees won't come back. And it was it was crazy because they're, they're telling me this story. And my first thought was, well, move on from them because people, because people need jobs and there are people that want to work. But this employer is like, but they've worked for me for however many years. I don't want to lose my employee. I've already invested the money in them. They're already trained. They know my business better than anyone else. I guess maybe because that is not me, I can't understand that that mindset. However, you know, you do have the situation, especially now that once we, you know, go through July with the extra $600 from the federal government on top of it, I do think you're really going to see who your loyal employees are that are going to come back. I think it's going to be a moment where it's, are you here? Or are you not? And that's going to be a big problem because what's going to end up happening at the end of July is when that $600 rolls out and runs out and that portion goes away, well, then people are really going to need to be gainfully employed again because the $227 or $277, whichever one it is, um, is not going to be enough to live on. Right. Now, I know that the radio station, like every advertising outlet, had people who um, were advertising closed their doors because they were forced to, stopped advertising. Um, and you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about some yeah. um, media companies who were very um, rigid in cancellation policies and forced clients to continue to advertise even though they couldn't have their doors open. Yeah. Um, how did Towns, what was the approach Town Square took? And, and do you feel like there was anything else you wish you had done differently? Um, so one of the things I love about Town Square and you kind of alluded to it before. I worked for Fox for a while. I worked for CNN in Atlanta. And, you know, uh, coming to Town Square is what got me to come back to Lafayette. And I have to say about my own company, I have never been more proud to work for people and to work for a team who realized that we do things differently here. And, it, you know, maybe things are done different parts of the, the company. You know, Town Square is in 67 markets. And um, our leadership is in New York, but we do things really differently here in the fact that we like relationships. There's a reason you hear some of the same sponsors doing multiple things with us. And it's because we tailor things to them. Um, 
that's sort of our outlook on advertising is it's a partnership. Um, I don't want to just have a billboard company that the billboard could be anywhere and you could pay and we'll put your face on the billboard. That's what we do. It's so different because we do tailor advertising to our, to our clients. The, you know, sales side of our business is so relationship, you know, we were able to retain a lot of our business just because we were able to change their message. You know, um, you start looking at clients like a like a service Chevrolet Cadillac, where their message changed to, guess what? Even though we're in this time, you still might have car trouble and we're going to help you. Um, little things like that. But I also feel like the, the number one goal was not to not let people out of their contracts now. It was, how can we serve you once this comes back? And I think that look three months, six months, nine months down the road is 100% attributed to uh, Bill Wilson, who's uh, the town square CEO. He got on a video call and I think it was very brave. It was like the second week of all this when we really did not know which way was up. Okay. Um, This was just as the governor stay at home order went into effect. So, you know, there were a lot of different people who were closing their businesses for the first time. You had a lot of people who were doing layoffs and, um, you know, as a business owner, advertising budget or paying my employees, um, that, that's a choice that a lot of people had to make. Um, Bill Wilson, our CEO, got on a video call and said, all right, guys, here's what I'm planning for. And I, I think the best thing, and, and I don't think it's nothing proprietary, I think it's a sign of really great character. He said, hope is not a strategy. I hope this is not as bad as it looks like it is right now. Um, but we got to push forward. And on the other side of this, we have to have a company that can thrive. And that really rejuvenated everyone. He got everyone on the same page to, okay, here's what we are. Programming side, my guys, we're going to focus on information. We're just informing. Nothing else matters but getting the latest information, getting it out there. I got to tell you, um, Bernadette Lee, who I do the show with every morning, spins more time on the phone with people than anyone else I've ever worked with dealing with people's problems off air. And, um, you know, I've worked at a lot of places and, you know, unfortunately, whenever you're all about content, Hey, you know, you get a good phone call, save that for the show, you know, like what we're going to do. It's just not the way she operates. And it's one of the things I love about her. So many businesses called and said, Hey, this is what I do. How can I do it safely to still comply? And I think that that is a big part of it as well. Um, you know, the programming side focused on that, the sales side, literally focused on reaching out to every single one of our clients to say, how can we help? And you know what, in some of those cases, the way we could help um, is for them to say, we have to suspend the business we're doing with you right now. And for us to say, we're going to be here when it comes back, it's going to come back. You know, was that easy to say in week two? Absolutely not. I didn't even believe it. But now you sort of look around and you see where we are. And I, you know, I wouldn't even want to see the numbers for unemployment in the parish right now. I hope that as things come back, these businesses have to add people back. Um, but that could take some time. It will for sure take longer than it took to get rid of it. Right. So talk to me about how you position people when it's talking about the relationship. And I know, for example, glass half full, it seems like you really make an effort to focus on the ways you can tell stories um, for the advertisers and the people you have relationships with. How does that work for you? What's your process? So, you know, I really, 
dive into every client individually. Um, I think that's one of my secrets to success. Um, one of my favorite kind of quotes and, and just, you know, mindsets, I guess, about dealing with clients. It, it actually came from Sarah Blakely, who was the founder of Spanx. And one of the things and she says- And a former says, classmate of Michael Russo's. Really? Yes, they went to school together at Clearwater High School. Well, there you go. It's Is true. My, I, I was totally not acknowledged by her then or now. <laughs> are, are you wearing Spanx right now? I mean, no. No, she went on to do real well. But like I said, I um, I was way ben- below her social radar in high school and to this day. So. So one of the things that she says, you know, kind of a a vision for the company is um, she believes you should sell the problem, not sell the product. And so the problem, you know, you think about Spanx, you think about all the problems that Spanx solves for people. That's what you sell. Um, On my side of things, you know, I love to meet with clients and I love to have a really laid back meeting to say, what's your issue? Where do you want to grow? Is it because you don't have enough people coming in and buying drinks? Um, are you having people that are coming in to just buy drinks and you have food? You know, that's in the restaurant business. I'm um, in the car business. Are people just coming in to get the, you know, the most expensive car, but you really need to sell all lines of cars? You know, those are all questions that we ask on the front end. Glass Half Full was one of these deals where I wanted to start telling these stories because it, it's different than anywhere else I've ever lived and anywhere else I've ever worked where people, when you ask them, they're willing to tell you what it what it took to get there. Um, and there are so many different characters, whether it's people that you know and you see all the time, whether they're in their own commercials or not. And then you talk to some of these business owners and you're like, oh, my gosh, why have I never heard this story about about why this restaurant was here and not there and what happened before? Um, so that, that's a big part of, I think, what we do. And because my background is news, I'm able to listen to someone for four hours and say, okay, three hours and 45 minutes of that happened to everyone. But this decision that you made in this year, we got to talk about that. I mean, it's, it's little things. I mean, I'll I'll tell you, like one of the things is Rafino's Rafino's with the cotton candy. It's just something to talk about, you know, and you know what I bring people uh, to town or or people come to town and they want to meet and we go there. I'm like, Guess what's going to happen at the end of this meal? This restaurant is going to put cotton candy on your table. I mean, it's it's just little things like that. And I love to grab onto those little nuggets because I truly believe this place is different. It's the only reason I'm back. I'm like, uh, I think they call us boomerangs. We left, experienced things, and came back. Um, Aileen Bennett, I, by the way, I don't mean for this to be a big name-dropping thing. I just have to talk to a lot of people. But... um Aileen Bennett writes the uh, the BU column uh, in The Advocate. And um, I would say all these great things about her, even if she didn't write one about me. But um, we met in the parking lot of Town Square for 20 seconds. No joke. She did Bernie's weekend show. And I caught her. She was already in the car. And I was like, is that Aileen Bennett? I got to go say hi. In 20 seconds, she said things to me that I thought about for the next six weeks until we actually sat down to have like a six- uh, the three hour coffee date. It was crazy. But she said, we were talking about out migration for some reason that day. And it, you know, the idea that people leaving here for better jobs and for better opportunities and everything else. 
And she, and she, I guess, knew that about me, knew that I was here and then I left and I'm back. And she said, you know, I don't think out migration is a, is a bad thing. We want people to leave, learn things and bring it back and make what we do better here. And um, I thought about that because I think we put this goal on making people stay. You know, you got to stay, you got to stay, you got to stay, which is good. I'm happy that I'm back. I wish no one would leave. I enjoy my life here. But I know I wouldn't have near the opportunities I've had if I would have stayed the whole time. And I would not have the experiences of seeing things. Sometimes you need to deal with real emergencies before you come back here and there's two bar owners who are mad at each other. And you're like, let me just drive downtown and calm this down. It's you know, the balance and, of the brain drain with the brain gain. And so the boomerangers bring that balance. And anytime we can create the import of people, we can kind of build that balance. You're talking about Rufino's yeah. and Ruffin and the um, cotton candy. Michael, do you want to tell Rob what you've been working on this week? Uh, well, he um, Ruffin's a really neat guy. If, if nobody's met him um, he came in, he's always, what I like about Ruffin as a client, we do work for him, is that uh, he will do anything. And um, he's never, <laughs> he's all in. He, usually he brings you could, me. You could tell that, by the way, by the walls inside of Rufino's. Yeah, the guy no. must not say no. He's that guy. They're going to make a movie about him one day, and it's going to be really, really great to watch. Um, <laughs> he's got so many stories. Like, we're talking one day, and he says, talk about name dropping, and, and he says, um, um, you know that, uh, now I'm going to drop his name, um, the odd rapper. Um he has a tattoo uh, on his face. Oh, um, yeah. Post Malone. Um, Post yeah. Malone. Yeah, yeah, he's like, I was hanging out with Post Malone, and he's a really weird dude. I, like, he really was hanging out with him. Like, like they, uh -huh. they, they, had, they, had a, they had a moment, you know? Who else yeah. can really say that? But anyway, he came in the other day, and we recorded. Uh, because of the cotton candy thing, I think, um, um, who was it that stopped by to pick up from them and posted something? It was um, the, um, the chicken guy. Todd Grace. Crispy, crunchy guy? Yeah, I'm sorry. Todd Raising Canes. Canes. Yeah. Oh, Raising Canes. They're friends. He's There's a lot of Latino. chicken men around here. There yeah. are. Um, he's the big one. Uh, but he picked up some food, I think, from him, and uh, and he posted on his Instagram page. So um, he called him the, uh, the candy man. And so Ruffin uh, was like, yeah, I'm, he went and got a shirt made, and it's like got like the uh, Willy Wonka cotton candy guy dancing, whatever. So we recorded a parody of it and uh, we're going to release it with like a little video later in the week, just kind of for fun. And, cool. and his story behind it is, and you know, you talk about branding and messaging and making, he's like, I know it's not a big deal, but I think it's going to make people feel a little bit better today. You know, just to have that little treat because they don't advertise it and, and they put it no. in the go boxes and the man. Oh, do they? Okay, yeah. good. Oh yeah. The man is literally in his office. I went there the other day and he's, he has a machine on his conference table and he's whipped in the cotton candy himself <laughs> and putting it in bags. Like, like it's all over him. He's covered in sugar. The whole room yeah. smells like sugar, but it's you a know, messy process by the it way. Is, it is. But you know, again, their whole thing is celebrate life and they're, he's trying to bring, you know, a little bit of joy wow. to people and um, you know, not just to tell them, but it's like, there's restaurants all over that are, that are really working hard right now. Just do little things. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. He's going to so. be a guest on Friday. And so he's going to talk a lot about um, why being remarkable and celebrating life is so important to him. And we might be able to debut that video if it's finished in time. That's what I'm hoping. That's yeah, cool. it came recorded here. Uh, we have a little studio set up and it was, uh, it was actually a lot of fun. So. Yeah. That's cool. So what was young Rob Kirkpatrick like? Tell us about the scared. Early. Scared of what? Scared of life? You know what? Scared of you know what's weird is um I was always like I have a younger brother who is uh, like three years younger than me. He would do everything first. He would ride the roller coasters first, and then I'd see that he lived. We and I'd go the second time. 
Um, and it's funny because now I'm seeing it with my own kids. Like I have a, I have a uh, five-year-old or she'll be five tomorrow and a six-year-old and the six-year-old will make the five-year-old do everything first. And, um, and so it's actually pretty funny. And occasionally, especially when I was really early on in the news business, people would tell me like they were really surprised I could handle it. Cause I was the guy that was like, I'm out of, I'm out of a, a parade with a crowd. Like that means that everyone's going to fight and I'm going to be in the middle of a fight. So I'm going to stand back. I'm not going up against the float. It was just never me. Um, but I all like I, when I tell you other than being a pilot, that was a pipe dream I always had, but I'm colorblind. So it's a no go. It's a, like an instant. Sorry, you can't do it. There's nothing to correct, correct that. And sometimes you have to follow blue lights to purple lights. Well, they all look the same to Rob. So right. you can't, uh, can't do that. Anyway, this is the only thing I ever wanted to do ever. And, um, the only thing that I ever thought, uh, you know, I, I would be good at or would would know how to do or, you know, any any of this um, in third grade. And you know what? I don't even know how to control this. I'm sorry if you're hearing my dings, but no, people are watching right now and, and digging <laughs> me. And I just tried to press. I just you know what? I think I can press. No, I lose you. Anyway, um, so I always wanted to do this. Um, third grade, I gave the weather on closed caption TV um, at my elementary school, the weather, the lunch menu, order your yearbooks, you know, whatever. It was, it was great. Um, when I think back to it, it was a great way to not have to go to class first. I would go to the library and I would do this production and I'd show up 30 minutes later, you know? Um, but I've always really been interesting in like how interested in how things are connected, how people are related, family trees. I love that stuff. I mean, I have it for my own family and, I cracked a big one uh, like last Thanksgiving. We had a middle name wrong and it literally like led to it, like the whole part of a family tree I was missing. And um, so I've always known I wanted to do it. Um, fast forward, I, I went to school, public school in St. Tammany Parish, which, you know, they don't have many private schools there because they don't need them. You know, it's just how it, just how it is. And um, I worked somewhere that had, uh, they had a government access channel for the school board. And when I tell you, I would put it up against almost any production facility I've ever worked in, even to this day, they figured out a way to make sure they could educate kids. And so they were able to write really great grants for industry level equipment. So that's how I learned. And, um, I never wanted to do anything else. I graduated from U UL in like two years in a summer because I didn't change my major and I just gobbled up courses and always took winter intercession because I was ready to go. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, I've been working like full time, I think since my, uh, since I was, uh, a freshman at UL and, so and that's just kind of how it happened. Professional job after college in journalism. What was it? So my first, uh, my first really outside of college was Fox. Um, was in Dallas. I, okay. I worked during college at KTC. Uh, the first ever KTC.com you saw had my fingerprints all over it. It's where I learned how to code way, way before coding was cool. And, um, you know, I did a lot. I did a lot there and then sort of moved into the reporting side a little bit. But there was a part of me that I always thought, you know, the reporting on air side of television is so fickle because it's only as good as you're like, look good, sound good, get the good stories, everything else. When I'm like, I'll tell you what I'm really good at. And that is uh, that is the producing side, the technical side, kind of the big picture. Here's how I want this to sound. Here's how I want it to start. 
Um, so, you know, having worked full time the whole time I was in college, I actually had a pretty decent resume for someone who just graduated that I could say like, oh, here's four years of full time work in my career field. And so that's like my undying advice to uh, to college kids and high school kids like find what you want to do. I don't care if you want to be a physical therapist. You need to be filing charts. You need to be answering the phones so you have a reference when you graduate. And a lot of people don't see that and they don't realize why they don't graduate in their job and go to get their first ever foot in the door. I think that's why a lot of people don't do what their major is. You know, they just find something else to do. But anyway, long story short, I um, I also produced Friday Night Football on KTC, And so it was like one little six word sentence on my resume. And um, I sent my resume everywhere, like coast to coast. And um, I get a call back from the Fox station in Dallas. It was a guy, Bruce Smith, who I, you know, remained friends with and was is a really big mentor of mine. And he called and he's like, you'd be shocked how I can find no one with sports experience to produce my morning show. And I'm like, Oh yeah, sports is my thing. Like it's, I, I'm the, I'm the biggest sports fan. Not really at the time. And, <laughs> but Hey, it was the one line and um, it totally got me in. Like it was totally the end and um, led to everything else. Uh, Good day is uh, still like a monster morning show. It's on from four until 10 every day, six hours, two anchor teams, I think they have five producers and four writers, an executive producer, and six anchors. And I came from, you know, Good Morning in Kadiana with uh, Tom and Tracy at the time. One producer. Yes, I mean, it's just just sort of how it went. But I tell people all the time when they, especially, I love talking to college kids because I love to burst their bubble. Like, they're not graduating and they're not going to be Katie Kirk tomorrow. And unfortunately, they need to be told that more. And it's good that they're not going to be Katie Kirk tomorrow because you need to you need to get some thick skin. You know, you got to know how to uh, how to cover these stories and also how to be able to sniff out BS. Like that's what a big part of it is. And you don't learn it by just learning it. You got to do it. You got to you have to mess up. And that's that's the key. So then you went from Fox in Dallas to CNN in Atlanta. Yes. Um, So I had uh, this good friend. Her name was Jennifer and she was a producer on Good Day. And she left there and she became uh, one of the senior producers for Morning Express with Robin Mead on HLN. And so as soon as she was there, I mean, we stayed in touch and everything. And she was like, this is the Disney World of news. Now, you got to realize this was in 2011. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about way before the hyper politicization, politicalization. And we'll go with that um, of like the 2015, 2016 campaign. It was before any of that. Right. And so. um so I actually worked, uh, nothing that you see on TV, but I actually worked for the affiliate team. And there's like 1,100 or so CNN affiliates that we work with every single day. So I was in that content side, bringing in stories from around the world. We would have people who were assigned to regions. So, you know, when a, a tornado happened in the Midwest, there was someone who was just bringing in that video. So I worked to repackage that as a manager and send it back out. So I'm sort of that guy, you know, when they um, they do it on the late night shows um, of like the news anchors all saying the exact same words and they use it to say it's a giant conspiracy. Um, It's not a conspiracy. It's just because these local newsrooms do not have the resources to write every single national and international stories. So they're affiliates. So they are affiliates of Fox, affiliates of CNN. You know, ABC affiliates, NBC affiliates, whatever. And this content that comes down 
has a script attached. Now, in my professional producer view, you always got to rewrite that. However, as the as the senior producer of CNN News Source, it's the service we're doing. We might be sending these scripts out to people who don't have a producer, don't have a writer. So it's fully within their rights as an affiliate to read it as we wrote it in Atlanta. And um, and that's why it happens. That's the behind the scenes. It's no big conspiracy. It's just a lack of bodies and fingers to type things. Oh, I think we are resetting maybe. So in the meantime, we are so close to our end at at 53 minutes in, we're going to do the lightning round with Rob and then we'll come back with his actor studio questions. And then this will be an hour with Rob Kirkpatrick, who is, is. oh yeah, let's see if this got him back in. Hi, Rob. Are we good now? Oh, we're great. Okay. I don't know what happened. It totally, the browser kicked me off. Well, that's okay. You're back now, so it's all good. No, so, I kicked you off. No. It sounded like you were possessed by a robot. And well, it was terrifying. Yeah. Well, he is a little bit possessed by robots. So, yeah. Rob, we're in the lightning round, and yeah. I want to know about your faves. So, favorite podcast? Oh, favorite podcast, Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, yeah, it's so good. Favorite Such car? Favorite car? Uh, Cadillac CTS. Okay, nice way to work in a sponsor there. I had um, one. Favorite musician. Favorite musician. Uh, I'm a big Ben Folds guy. All right. Favorite meal. Oh, hands down. Uh, my grandmother's breaded meat, which is basically um, like Sicilian beef. Oh, my dad white, makes that. It's so white, good. Um, white beans. It's perfect. All together. All together. No, no boundaries. All together. On a plate. Oh, no, no. The food can't touch. No, 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 no. no. We still have separated plates at our house. Oh, gross. No, yeah, no, food should not touch. Rob, we may break up now. Uh, Favorite leisure activity? Oh, I like to read a real book with real pages. Yeah. Favorite way to treat yourself? Oh, I'm, I'm a car buyer. It's my absolute guilty pleasure. But I try to always get such a good deal that it's all right when I've had enough of a car in a couple of years. Okay. You can just slide into the next one. Sure. Okay. And now our very last segment is going to be the questions from the actor studio. Okay. They are my favorites. All right. So Let me sip of water. What James. is your favorite word? Consciousness. Nice. Least favorite word? Moist. Oh, oh makes me shudder. Um, mm-hmm. What turns you on? Confidence. Very good. Turns off. Leeching. People who leech onto other people. Okay. Freeloader. What sound or noise do you love the most? Uh, my kids. First thing in the morning, w- waking me up. I complain about it, but it's just, and usually they're very nice in the morning. They have not been tainted by the day. So they're in jail. Yeah. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate the most? Okay, crazy. Back to my time in Dallas. It's the it's the sound of a bell, like a service bell. Okay. Because that was the sound in your headphones when the anchors messaged you in the booth. Oh. And it was always something like, go back to first grade if you don't know how to put the correct date in. It Gosh. literally makes my stomach drop. Yes. I don't um, like being favorite curse word. Mm, has to be the F word. Has yeah, that's a good one. Just because it's so strong, it's the be all and end all. 
Right. So I know earlier you talked about being a pilot, but is there any other profession that you would love to attempt if not the one you're in now? I don't think I could be as passionate about anything else. Okay. Maybe I'll be this, maybe helping someone, maybe the, maybe the business in a different way, helping someone to do what I do. Oh, I like that. Maybe that, but yeah. What profession would you not like to do? Oh gosh, I I could never do food service. There are some times when I have to um, like spray off a plate in my own house, and I can't. Like okay. I, I'm a gloved dishwasher. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine. All right, and last but not least, when you arrive in heaven, what do you want God to tell you at the pearly gates? <sighs> you stuck to your guns, and you were nice. You smiled. That was all. That Two was things, cool. but I'll take it all. I'll take You're it all. Important. Okay, you smiled. All Good right. job smiling, Rob. Rob, thank you for spending this hour with us and oh chatting about I'm where not, you are I in the world. Lightning round, and I might have to add it to my show just to punish people, but I, I'm like sweating. <laughs> but there's no wrong answer. That's what makes it fun. Yes. Wow, this has been fun. Thank you, well, Brad. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Bye. See you soon. Bye. And thank you all for being with us for this hour. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Razor Branding Podcast. And tune in next time where our guest will be Melissa Bowen talking about mental um, health during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic and what you need to do to keep yourself moving forward. Thanks so much. Bye.